As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. It's so important, so news now, we're going to, instead of chatting here, we're going to get right to it. Mr. Zelter, Jim Zelter's co-president of Apollo Asset Management, they are on a roll. We all know that. We thank them for Torsten Slock and his wisdom on a daily basis, and he'll try to keep up with Mr. Slock. Jim Zelter joins us this morning. <laughs> Jim, there's a fire sale going on in Zurich, Switzerland. I believe you guys have a nodding acquaintance with it. Describe the theft this morning and yesterday as Apollo took on assets for from a beleaguered Swiss bank. Well, good morning. Good morning, all of you. Um, you know, for us, the, the transaction you're referring to, the securitized products business, we've thought for years that there is a, a great theme going on, a great evolution of a lot of assets that are in as, as strategies that are within the banks are moving to the alternative side of the business. And you know, SPG is a tremendous, it's really a finance company of finance companies. It's a massive business with a 20-year track record. And bringing that team on, 250-plus people, 300 origination platforms underneath it, uh, it really is our objective of fixed income replacement, getting investment-grade returns, but doing it in a more thoughtful, uh, actually, candidly, a less risky manner. So uh, a massive transaction for us. Uh, the way we're able to do it was very nuanced. We'll talk about that in our earnings call today. But uh, we're very excited. And, and we, we think this whole area of private credit, uh, I saw your, your past guest, this is the golden era for private credit. You know, rates have been rising. Economy is doing pretty well. Uh, you can get double-digit yields. But in, in this particular, in the securitized products business, it's really right. investment-grade risk. It tremendous spreads. I learned a long time ago, Jim, that the heart of this, as you correctly mentioned, is you need to retain 250 warm bodies as you bring them over. Explain the incentive, the, how you're going to incentivize those people to join Apollo. Well, like, like we've done for, for decades, Tom, I mean, we, we bring them in, we, we have a, an aligned business plan. It's not just about growing the assets, but doing it in a productive way where credit losses are negligible or zero. And we're aligned on the trajectory of the business. We're really aligned on what the investors get at the end of the day. It's all about investor returns. And we're, we're aligned at making a productive business that that's, uh, accretes to the shareholders of Apollo. So if we do that in an aligned basis, which we've done, um, that's, the, that's the success long term. And I think that you know what? What this management team, who is there, they're extremely excited to be part of a business where we can 
offer this type of long-term trajectory in terms of benefits and compensation, but also in alignment with the shareholders at, at the funds, alignment of shareholders at Apollo, but also the most critical aspect is long-term predictable capital. So they can go about their business, they can execute their business and, and grow their business with long-term sticky matched assets. That's really the key to success. Mm -hmm. It's no more complicated than that. Hey, Jim, you've deployed a lot of capital very recently, a lot of capital, and we've all seen the correction take place in public markets. There's been this bigger conversation about whether we've seen the correction take place yet in private markets. I just wonder how you think that's going to play out through the next 12 months and what that might mean for the volume of transactions we can expect from you over the next few quarters. Sure. Well, you know, for us, uh, you know, our discipline, our determination, you know, the theme we've always talked about here is purchase price matters. You know, we're, we're finally in an environment where for years, uh, folks asked us, how are we going to perform in a higher rate environment? I, I think the results of the last 12 months show us that. You know, for us, this is easily the best time to be an investor in new issue vintage credit. The best that I've been here, I've been here 17, 18 years. You know, you're getting double digit returns by lending at the top of the capital structure. So, you know, voracious demand and, and on the portfolio, as you're asking, you know, we're, we're not seeing, I mean, it's certainly a very bifurcated economy. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you ask Torsten the, the economics questions. But for us, if we, if we have followed this discipline of, of our mantra of purchase price matters, we're, we're lending to great companies that are, you know, well positioned. And the reality is it's very difficult to, you know, uh, put one term on which way the economy is going in terms of, you know, upside, downside with rates. It's very bifurcated. You have many industries that are consumer-led, you know, the cruise industry, hospitality, entertainment, travel, they're doing quite well. Those that are much more hard industry are having a little bit more challenging time, you know, the autos and such. But for us, we, there's a lot of companies that, that need capital. Uh, we've expanded our capital base, not only the, the, the size of our capital, but what puts us in a unique standing is the breadth of our capital. We can offer scale solutions, you know, down in the mid single digits, which are very accretive to our uh, you know, uh, spread-related earnings of our of our retirement services, and that makes a lot of sense for us. We're we're really thinking about that incremental return for a unit of risk, and for us, it's a great time to be in our business. Do you expect that we're going to just miss a default cycle altogether? Then, you know, I think I think Lisa, it's going to be one where certain industries get a hit a bit harder, and it's going to be you know we all talk about you know our default's going to go from two to three or four percent. They probably will tick up higher in 23, 24, but it's not going to be broad based across the high yield sector or the leverage loan sector. It's going to be concentrated in four or five industries. But I would say that the theme that you're seeing in your in, in the last two weeks in your show, you know, companies are much more focused on returning capital to shareholders. You know, we're not in that zero cost of capital world anymore. What's going on at the big oil majors? What's going on at Disney? What's going on at a lot of other companies? These companies now are very focused on cash flow generation. Uh, and that's what we've done for, for, for 32 years. It, you know, it's, it, that's a playbook that lasts. It's robust. But for us, there will be a certain degree of a credit cycle, but it's not going to be broad brush across every asset. Or at least we're not running our business right now with that intention in mind. There was a long time when private credit was largely uh, the sphere of institutional investors. And then over the past few years, pre-pandemic mostly, there was a real push into the individual investor. How much is that still the opportunity versus going back and really doubling down on institutions? 
Well, I think they're both growing. I mean, you know, the institutions have been in this business for 30 years in terms of what they did in private equity and then all the other alternatives. And in the last three or four years, you know, the global wealth channels around the globe, which are voracious, the amount of wealth that's been created, you know, not only in the U.S., but in Asia and in Europe and India, uh, in Hong Kong and such, there's a, there's a voracious ap- a- uh, appetite for high quality managers that have proven themselves uh, in products that make sense, good education, appropriate fees, appropriate liquidity. Uh, but we think it's it's a, a you know a once in a decade opportunity. Uh, it's not surprising that a handful of firms are very focused on it. Uh, when we did our investor day 16 months ago, it was one of our three critical priorities or initiatives, uh, along with origination and 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 capital solutions. But it's still front and center for us and. You know, certainly I think this rate rise actually makes it quite attractive uh, for many folks to do uh, to enter this world. And, you know, we're, we're building we're building a tremendous uh, resource base to be able to uh, really create products, uh, invest appropriately and, yeah. and service the clients necessarily. Hey, Jim, one final question. Is Manchester United a once in a decade opportunity? Well, listen, I, I, I'm more focused on, uh, on U.S. sports, but the reality is there's, a, there's an amazing amount of sports ecosystem financing going on, and, and we expect to be part of that going forward. Do you want to elaborate on some of that? Well, I just think what you're seeing right now, in, in, no. you know, these, these, these sports are global. Uh, I know you and Tom have your view on certain teams in, in uh, the Premier League. I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't even think about getting in the middle of the U2 on that one. <laughs> Jim Zander of Apollo. Jim, if you ever want to look over there, you know, we can consult. We can <laughs> work that out, TK. Maybe you can take a, a stake in Spurs. I, I, yeah, you know, I think, you know, I'd call Mr. Levy and have Mr. Zelter over to Which, you know, know, partake in the experience we'll, we'll with the tots. We'll mediate. Yeah. Well, you know. yeah. Thank you, Jim. We'll take some fees for that, too. Yeah, you know. Of course, you know. <laughs> two basis sort of points. Sort of investments of plus. Securitize it. <laughs> two basis <laughs> points and a six-pack of John Courage. It'll be great. Jim, that was great. Jim's out to there of Apollo. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. One of our most popular guests, everyone leans forward for Ian Shepherdson, chief economist, Pantheon uh, Macro. Ian, you brave to go where no one goes, which is to actually study inventory dynamics. I would suggest it's the most ignored part of a GDP calculation. What do you see in the inventory dynamics right now? 
No, I see a downshift, a big downshift, and, and hence quite a, a good probability of a, a shockingly low negative GDP number for the first quarter, and probably for the second quarter as well. So quite of a, a sharp reversal at the headline level from what we saw at the end of last year when the economy <coughs> grew by nearly 3%. But half of that growth was craziness in the inventory data, which is not sustainable and actually will reverse. So in terms of, uh, of appearances, markets are going to really struggle over the next couple of months. You know, we just had a huge payroll print. We're probably going to get some big numbers, partly because of the warm weather in January for retail sales, home sales, construction, all the rest of it. But I also think we're shaping up for a negative Q1 GDP number. So this is going to be very hard to read and very confusing. Does a negative Q1 GDP mean an NBER recession? No, I don't think it does at all. So the NBER defines recession in, in much more broad terms. It's all about falling output, falling incomes, falling employment. I don't think we're going to get that. The market shorthand for recession, of course, is two quarters of falling uh, GDP. And I think there's a very good chance that we get that. But, but my guess is that the US is, is quite well placed to skirt a formal NBER recession. I do think that the state of the private sector's finances offer quite a big cushion against what the Fed is doing. So the Fed is hammering away with rates, but the private sector's debt service costs are still very low. Their balance sheets are pretty strong. Savings buildup is still there, for some people anyway. And so there's quite a lot of protection against what the Fed's doing. And I think that pushback means that we can probably skirt around a recession. Uh, if we have one, I don't think it'll be very bad. And I don't think it'd be very long. But my base case is we dodge it altogether. What does that mean in terms of how quickly inflation will disinflate? Ah, so this is a, the gazillion dollar question. Now, can we get the sustained disinflation that we need without a recession? And I think there's some very encouraging signs there. So in particular, the, the downshift in wage growth over the last uh, year and a half uh, since that crazy peak in the summer of 21 when it was over 6%, very scary. Fed was very worried about a wage price spiral at that point. But, you know, Vice Chair Brainard said a couple of weeks ago she doesn't see a wage price spiral. And the ECI data last week, I think, pretty much confirmed that story. Wage growth now is hovering just around four, which is still on the high side, but it's coming down without unemployment going up because participation is gradually creeping higher. The labor market is normalizing. And if we can see in the next couple of quarters that wage growth gets down a little bit below four, then we're back into a sustainable place without having to break the economy to get there. But this is still kind of speculative to some extent. The trend is in the right direction, but we haven't quite got to the destination that we need to be at just yet. This sounds great. And a lot of people buy into it. And a lot of people have bought risk assets it's in the heels of just this call. And then used car prices went up. And I point to this very small sector because it highlights the mm. goods disinflation that is not linear. This idea that because of the lag effects, perhaps some of the supply that was not out there during the years of the pandemic, there isn't the same number of vehicles to get resold. And suddenly those base effects are no longer beneficial to the disinflationary narrative. How important is it to watch the reinflation of certain goods sectors that really were the basis of this trend altogether? Yeah, so, so falling goods inflation has been a big driver of the improvement that we've seen. Uh, and uh, car prices have been a, quite a big part of that. Uh, we saw an enormous jump in uh, new vehicle sales in January. They were up nearly 18% in one month. And I think that's probably an indication that we saw a strong number for, for used vehicle sales. Oh, we don't have that data yet. And that's probably what pulled prices up because I don't think any dealers were mm -hmm. expecting to see sales rise by 18%. So I think they got short of inventory. They had to go to the auctions to find inventory. And so prices spiked. 
liked. I'm really hopeful that this is a one-time thing, but it is going to hit the CPI, and we know we're going to get some lumpy numbers. And for those people at the Fed and in markets who, who will want to seize on those numbers, yeah, the next couple of months could be quite tricky. But I do think that ultimately margin compression for car dealers is going to pull those prices down quite a long way. But not every month. It just, it just doesn't work like that. Ian, I want you to take your wonderful pantheon ability in Asia and a reopening of China. I want you to drag it over to an estimate of the resilience of the American economy. The bears are in retreat right now. Equities up today. Pepsi-Cola with bang-up earnings, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have a glass half full on the American economic experiment? And is it because of the China reopening? Uh, the China reopening is helpful for sure. I mean, it's especially going to be helpful for U.S. manufacturing because essentially what happens in Chinese manufacturing today has a meaningful impact on what happens on U.S. manufacturing two to three months down the line. There's a pretty clear line between the two. So we're feeling quite excited now about China for the spring. You know, the, uh, the COVID wave was less disruptive than we, than we feared it would be, and the rebound in some of the surveys is pretty strong already. That is going to transmit through to those U.S. numbers. So what looks right now like a pretty nasty squeeze on U.S. manufacturing probably is going to be easing somewhat uh, by the spring. So we're very happy to see it. But of course, you know, manufacturing is only, what, 9% of payrolls and 11% of GDP. It's not a game changer, but it, it's certainly helpful at the margin. And it is part of the story why we don't have in our base case forecast a U.S. recession. Now, had China stayed in the hole, you know, that would have been uh, more of a problem. So at the margin, it's helpful. Of course, the, at the moment, Chinese inflation, PPI inflation, is still negative. It's like almost minus 3%. And a year and a half ago, it was plus 11. So that's helpful as well, because that's working through gradually into disinflation pressure in the US, coupled with the domestic margin compression that we're seeing in, in retail. So those two things together, it's quite a nice story. You know, still got falling prices in China, but we've got stronger growth as well. So it's the right combination. And uh, we, you know, we hope it persists. It's, it's kind of our base case that we're going we're gonna to keep that for a while. Let's get to the important question, Ian. Should Man City get relegated? <laughs> well, if they cheated, they should, absolutely. There we go. It's very diplomatic as a Newcastle fan. It's very but it doesn't look good, does it? Very I know, seriously. Think I think that. he was thinking about Newcastle's own. <laughs> he decided own that the answer to that question five days ago. <laughs> well. <laughs> it, it, you know, it would put us up one place. It would put us more firmly in the Champions League shots. Uh, Champions League positions were something unpleasant to happen to them. So, ah, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> there we go, Ian. We got there. Ian Shepherdson of Pantheon Macroeconomics. Ian, thank you as always. On the American economy now, Luke Tilley joins us, Chief Economist, uh, Wilmington Trust. Luke Tilley, the state of the American labor economy, it's a jumble to me. Claims odd, jolts odd, everything odd. What do you and Wilmington Trust make of our job economy? Yeah, it's obviously an incredibly tight labor market, as Mike was just saying. Uh, the low level of claims really syncs up with what we saw with job growth in the month of January. Uh, interestingly, if you look at the non-seasonally adjusted numbers, you usually get 2.8 or 3 million lost jobs in January. Uh, this time around, this past January, you get a loss of 2.5 million jobs. Of course, the seasonal adjustment pushes that higher. And what we really see is in this tight labor market, employers are holding on to their employees. We know how challenging it is to hire people. Uh, so it's really more of a story of wanting to hold on to people. That's the story behind the strong jobs number for January. And we're also seeing that with the claims this morning. Mm -hmm. We think that you know the, the job growth obviously is very strong, but it's more about the differential. You just referred to the job. 
adults uh, jumped up on a one-month basis. It looks a little bit fishy. Before that, it had come down more than 10%, but it's really the mismatch that's going to matter more than total job growth, Tom. Is wage growth going to cooperate so Lisa can see her immaculate disinflation? Well, we've already seen, I, I hear people talk about, is it possible to have this immaculate, uh, um, you know, disinflation? Uh, it's easy to point out that we've already had it for three months, right? We've got, this is not uh, just a one-off. You've got three months of much slower inflation uh, while you still have the, the strong wages in the tight labor market. We think that it's going to get much more challenging when you get to the middle of this year and beyond uh, because the labor shortages are going to persist. We also see supply chain challenges. And then also the energy transition is going to keep some upward pressure on inflation. So we expect it to keep coming down in the near term. Uh, we're encouraged that average hourly earnings actually uh, were pretty mild with the 0.3% increase. And if you look at production and supervisory workers, the slowdown in wage growth from last year into this year is even more encouraging. So if you do get some noisiness, but you do get this sense of disinflation just based on the year-over-year -year composition uh, of the way that the data is, is, is drawn up, how do you then get confidence? How do you give confidence that there's going to be a stickier inflation later in the year when all anecdotal evidence is speaking to the other? Yeah, well, we think that it's going to be keep coming down on a year over year basis. As you point out, you've got those base effects. We just don't think it's ever going to really come back down to what we saw between the global financial crisis and the COVID pandemic. We've got higher inflation on a trend basis now between two and a half and three and a half percent on a multi-year basis going out. It could dip pretty low in the middle of this year. We know what's going on with shelter. Uh, and even if we just see the shelter numbers flatline, that would imply some very low inflation numbers. Wilmington Trust were much more focused on nine and 12 and 24 months out. Uh, and those higher inflation numbers are going to keep rates higher and actually offer some, some opportunities for investors. So it's not a whole lot of confidence, Lisa, about what the month over month or even to the middle of this year has a lot more to do with that longer term trajectory. We see those challenges. Uh, we also think they're navigatable. Well, navigatable, which really speaks to the Torsten Slock no landing kind of scenario at a time when a lot of people are pushing out potentially even for years, any type of recession. Are you among those? Yeah, it, it could go out or it could happen this year. You know, we've got basically a 50-50 chance, we think, of a soft landing versus a mild recession. It's going to come back to employers. We know that employers are dealing with higher borrowing costs, a little bit of softening in demand. If they keep hiring, then, you know, you've got mm -hmm. consumers, you've got job growth, you've got wage growth, and that'll keep the, the, the economy's head above water in the middle of this year. Uh, if companies get spooked and those higher borrowing costs hit their CapEx and their hiring decisions, well, that's going to lead to recession. I actually think it's going to have a lot more to do with the lagged effects and all of the hikes that were last year, uh, much more important than whether the Fed stops at five or 5.1, you know, one or two more hikes here, hikes here and there. Uh, businesses right. are reevaluating those, those CapEx decisions now. Luke, you uh, earned your stripes at the Philadelphia Fed, which has one of the most interesting research capabilities, given the terrain, given the geography as well. And to me, it really harkens back to the study of the core American economy, which I'm going to call domestic final sales. When you take out the foreign dynamics, the inventory dynamics, and you just look at this thing, domestic final sales, is it half full or half empty? We've definitely seen the slowdown, and that's our preferred measure. It's a little bit like looking at core CPI, right? You strip out the international. We actually go with private uh, final sales to strip out the government as well. And what we've seen there is an appreciable slowdown 
in the economy. I mean, it was just barely positive uh, for the most recent GDP report, I think 0.2%. And what we see there, there is a natural slowdown that was going to happen anyway from COVID, but it's also the impacts of the Federal Reserve's policy. We know that residential investment has been hit very hard, and this is exactly what they're trying to do is to engineer that slowdown in the economy. And Powell referred to this just the other day, uh, the final sales numbers, because what we do see is that slowdown that should help to bring inflation yeah. down. And of course, we need to wait to see which way that breaks. Look, Tilly, thank you so much with Wilmington Trust. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is a joy. Right now, we're going to go down memory lane, which was that long ago and far away with a guy named David Malpass, who's got a job in Washington right now holding up a bank, there was, at Bear Stearns, absolutely definitive emerging market coverage. There was something about it in the air, in the pixie dust, and Catherine Rooney Vera was part of that. She's chief market strategist, head of global macro research at Bolta Capital. I've got to go back to Emmy Shio and David Malpass and all of it. What was it like? Is Bear Stearns literally, in my I, my opinion, invented EM coverage on Wall Street? Well, thank you for that kind introduction, Tom. And Bear Stearns was fun. It was a great place to work. And really, I miss it. Um, but EM was a, a strong point. David Malpass, John Riding, Amy Shio, yeah. as you mentioned, some of the, the heavy yeah. hitters. Um, I was in emerging market fixed income research. Yeah, okay. And so enjoyed that time, yes. But, it, you know, it was it was a different battle. But then it was EM connected to the central, as Bill Rhodes would say, the central banker to the world. Is Jerome Powell right now the central banker to Amy Shio's Latin America or the Pacific Rim? What's the power of our, our central bank leader now? Well, emerging markets uh, are do very poorly in um, a Federal Reserve hiking cycle with the dollar appreciating in value. So that's why we saw emerging markets get devastated last year. And I think, Tom and Lisa, that that's why we've seen emerging markets be the new darling um, year to date. It was one of the worst performers in 2022, and it's one of the top performers this year, precisely because it seems the Fed is uh, maybe going to stop pretty soon. Um, I still think it's a bit early to jump into that trade. I think that uh, the momentum could carry us higher for the next month or so. Um, but the Fed could do more uh, and more than the market is currently anticipating, as as your guests have ad nauseum mentioned. Um, but, but, but there's a, a certain euphoria, I think, right now in for for the riskiest paper, and for the mean reversion trade. Euphoria, can you build on that? What is driving the euphoria other than just, you know, 
I guess, positioning squeeze. Yeah. I was talking with your previous guest in the green room, Winnie, and, and she called it, um, everyone's jazzed about the, the China reopening trade. And that's fantastic for emerging markets. China is a very important um, trade partner for Latin America. And it's very important as well for Asia, ex-China, right? So as China reopens, um, the surrounding areas, Malaysia, Thailand, those areas are going to get a bounce in tourism uh, and Latin America is also going to benefit. So I think there's that aspect. A weakening dollar is very favorable for emerging markets. Economic growth this year is going to be stellar in emerging markets. India, more than 6% growth. China is going to lead the growth. Um, and that's going to be positive versus the developed markets. We're here in the U.S., in my view, we're going to be flat. At best. Well, but so do you think that just to sort of uh, put something concrete around this, do you think that right now the China reopening has been fully priced and even overpriced when it comes to how it's been represented in emerging markets, just riskier assets in general? Yes. And I think that before I recommend going long on a sustainable fashion to institutional or even retail investors, we do have to see a pullback, a correction in risk assets. I think the U.S. recession is, is not priced in, particularly in the equity markets. And we have not seen difficulties with financing. There's a lot of <sighs> names in the emerging space, as well in, as in high yield, that have not had those financing mm -hmm. difficulties that I do expect to come to the fore as we feel the repercussions and the ramifications right. of 500 basis points and tightening in more than a year. Two things right now, very important. You're lecturing at the University of Miami, and you're going to tell them we just had a new depth of inversion on the 210 spread, negative 85.298 points, three-month 30 is at 107. It's not through to new depth uh, yet, but there's the vanilla spread. What is the signal of new deep, 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 substantial inversion. Yeah, it's been really fun to be an adjunct professor at UM teaching global economics, especially, Tom, in this time uh, of in, in our lifetimes. Um, look, I'll go back to emerging markets again. They did their homework. Brazil increased rates 1,000, more than 1,000 basis points mm -hmm. last year alone. Um, so I think that's part of the euphoria, you know, plowing into these right. countries, these names, these geographies, <clears throat> these asset classes um, that are very juicy in yield. Okay, I, I've got to ask Lisa. Lisa asked for me as well. Both of us tried to price a condo in Miami the other day and <laughs> fell off our our chair. Can you? You're you're living it. You're living the yes, Florida sir. boom. I'm a beneficiary of it. You're a beneficiary of it. Okay. <laughs> Give us, give all of our listeners and viewers worldwide a snapshot into the sustainability mm -hmm. of the Florida boom. Can it continue? The good news is that we have diversity both in, um, you know, the, the diaspora from New York, New Jersey, and from Latin America. So right. all those people are coming. So it's not just the New Yorkers that certainly have bid up, not just my house price, Tom, which has uh, jumped significantly in value, um, but also the wait list to get into schools. It's very difficult now to... Um, to get into the private schools because of this influx. I think it is diverse. I think the um, the mayor and the and the, the politicians there have done a fantastic job of enticing capital and it's diverse in nature. So I don't envy you looking at real estate in Miami. Um, I'm one of the New Yorkers that moved down, but thankfully oh, 15 Lisa, years ago. Lisa, when Bear four Stearns bedrooms, under, three brasses, and there's grass coming up through the driveway. Yeah, 2. we have a yard. Five million. Basically, <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. most, the most interesting thing that it's you've stunning. said in the, you know, not re uh, Florida real estate. I'm still looking at the 210 spread, yeah. which shows you how much of uh, you know, a nerd or whatever you want to call me. Uh, but I'm watching right now 
equities rally, continue to extend the rally, even though people pile into 10-year treasuries at a time when they're expecting more rate hikes. This doesn't add up. Do you understand this, Catherine? No, and I think Victoria Fernandez said it very well. It doesn't add up. And so that's why I like T-bills. I've been saying this for an extended period of time. In fact, here on Bloomberg a couple months ago, 4.7%, three-month, six-month T-bills. It makes sense to me. I think it's a a good idea to be in cash and cash equivalents. Some of my top picks in the equity space last year I continue to like, which are staples, underperformed this year, um, utility, energies, and healthcare uh, in the equity space. And I think we do need to remain defensive under the expectation that this can't continue, right? We can't have record low unemployment in 53 years, um, productivity really kind of dismal, um, and labor costs still still, uh, rising uh, with the Fed getting to its 2% inflation target. We're going to have to see. Thank you so much. Catherine Rooney Vera with us at Voltec at Capital Markets, joining from Miami. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.